Hi guys, Tim here. Just a quick heads up before you listen to this week's episode. As we go through the album, we do talk about some quite difficult themes around depression, self-harm and, and sadly suicide. So please make sure you're in the right frame of mind to be hearing about things like that. If you are feeling vulnerable and need to talk to someone, if you're in the UK, you can call the Samaritans on 116-123. Sorry for the public service announcement. Just thought it'd be worth giving you a quick heads up. Enjoy the show and thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. ta Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and put them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I am the girl that wanted to be God. I am not. I am still Kev. Hello, Kevin. How are you? Yeah, can't complain. How, how about yourself? Yeah, not bad at all. Thank you very much. Uh, anyway, welcome to Album Clash. This is the start of a new clash. It's the final clash in our Britpop season. Okay, so this week I'm going to be taking us through Manic Street Preachers' Everything Must Go, which came out in 1996. Next week, Kev, what are you going to be going through? I will be going through Telling Stories by the Charlatans. Which came out the following year. Um, so, what connects to these albums, Kev? Tragedy. Yes. Not the Bee Gees song, Then Covered by no. Steps. <laughs> <laughs> although, I, no. although a Manic's cover of that would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no, not the Bee Gees song. Yes, so there are some quite sombre themes that we needed to speak about both this week and next week. Put simply now, these are both bands and both albums that were released in the aftermath of prominent members of each band disappearing, dying. Yeah, there are other things that connect them. So they are firstly both bands that have, despite those tragedies and despite everything else thrown at them, have outlived all of their contemporaries. They are still both going now. Yeah, very much so. They, as I mentioned last week, they're both bands that were sort of established before the Britpop explosion, but sort of got wrapped up in that theme of, of Britpop and both use that to their own advantage, it must be said. There is one other link. Do you know what it is? No, I don't. So it is a link to the defining moment of the Britpop era. Both the Manics and the Charlatans supported Oasis at Nebworth. Of course they did. The Manics also supported Oasis at Main Road. Yes, I, I was aware of that. Uh, yeah, so a few things that connect them, but as Kev said, the main thing is tragedy. Um, can't get you out of my head time. Kev, do you have any shite in your head? I do. So it's funny that I uh, mentioned Steps. So we had um, Sam's sister stay here uh, last night and she uh, was singing along to the abhorrent and frankly fucking dreadful One for Sorrow by Steps. And unfortunately, it has been in my head today. You see now, that is a step song that I am not familiar with. You probably don't recognise the name, but as soon as you heard it, you probably would go, oh, fucking hell. 
It's fucking shite. I mean, is it like all step songs, a sort of pseudo disco watered down bollocks? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Um, I feel very sorry for you. <laughs> yes, I, I feel sorry for me too. I mean, it's not even like a funny story that no. you've got. It's just, it's a shit song that someone's played and it's been stuck in your head. That's, yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's, a, that's the whole thing. Thoughts and prayers, mate. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> Uh, so I have a shite song It's stuck in my head as well And it's the latest in my theme Of not everything that came out of the Britpop scene Was good And this definitely wasn't It's Gay Dad Oh, wow. uh, to, to Earth With Love <laughs> So For anyone that doesn't remember Gay Dad They were In sort of 98, 99 According to the NME and Melody Maker The next massive thing the reason why they were the next massive thing is because the frontman of Gay Dad, Cliff Jones, he was a former journalist with publications like Mojo and The Face. And he basically got all of his uh, rock journalist mates in the British music press to big up his new band. They were the first band ever to play on top of the pops without having a record deal. That song they played was To Earth With Love. And then they came out to much fanfare and in my opinion at least very very little substance <laughs> i don't think i don't think that's a controversial opinion <laughs> fucking dreadful awful they were not good just had a really shit logo which is like the pedestrian logo um yeah. in the uk yeah and the name the name annoyed me not not for any issues of homophobia but it was just like oh look at our clever name it, I, oh, it's not even no, clever bad. it's a shit name for the band it is a shit name for a band. So yeah, that's been uh, sort of in my head. But again, deliberately, because I wanted to call out something shit from the era. So let's <laughs> move on from that. What do you want to give a tip of the hat to, Kev? So a band that uh, both me and you have seen together, Eels, they have a new album coming out in January, Ooh. which is called Extreme Witchcraft. They recently released a single from it uh, for people to listen to, which is called Good Night on Earth. It's absolutely boss. And just to reel you in a little further, the producer on it is John Parrish, PJ Harvey's producer. The last time he produced an Eels album was the Soul Jacker album. Which is fucking incredible. Yeah. So this is all things good. And okay, the single's boss. Shut up and take my money, uh, to quote Futurama. <laughs> Excellent. I'll be checking that out. Mine is from uh, a long time ago. Well, Back from the pit pop era, in fact. And it's a song which has relevance to today's episode, actually. Uh, but it's one that I really wanted to call out because I think it's fucking incredible. It is Yes by Mikhail Mottner Butler, which is so it's also a link back to uh, our episode last week, Woman Through Suede, obviously. Um, so, yeah, after he left Suede, Bernard Butler formed the sort of double act with former Thieves vocalist David McCalmont. They released an album, The Sound of McCalmont, a butler. That album was produced by Mike Hedges, whom we'll talk about more later. The lead single, the main single, was Yes, and it's fucking brilliant. Yeah, I don't really have anything more to, to add to that because it is an absolute belter. It's spectatastic. It is. It, it's so It's so well done. So, yeah, also this year, I think possibly this week, I think, it's 25th anniversary of the release of People Move On, which is Bernard Butler's solo album as well. Which is a good album. Yeah, it's got some good stuff on it. 
yeah, it, 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 very much of its time, but a good album. Yeah, and very much of his oeuvre. Oh, yes, very much so, very much so. Uh, yeah, okay. So, as always, we shall tweet out the links to those tracks. We will also add them to our Spotify and YouTube playlists, won't we, Kev? Yes, uh, the Spotify playlist is going to is going to get done. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting there. <laughs> will it be out by the time this podcast actually launches? We can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no, I can only hope. Yes. You can do somewhat more than hope. Well, I could do more than hope, but, you know, um, at the minute I'm offering hope. Should we do some top trumps? I think we should. So I'm feeling confident this week. I I am not feeling as confident. Okay, so I won last week, so I get to choose first. Do you know what? I'm going to mix things up a bit. We always go sales first. I'm not going sales first this week. I am going to go with lists. I'm going to go with the lists first. Okay. All right. In the year 2000, Q Magazine listed Everything Must Go as the 39th best British album. In 2017, Pitchfork listed Everything Must Go as the 32nd best Britpop album. And in 2013, The Enemy ranked it as number 182 in their best 500 albums of all time list. So I only have one. Okay. But it is one list that you're on. The 27, 2017 Pitchfork Best Britpop Album, number 29. Ooh. So what are we doing with this? Because on that, on that direct comparison, you win. Yeah, but you're on more lists. So I would, I'd, I'd call that a draw. Okay, if you want to call it a draw, I was happy to concede, but we'll call it a draw. You've said it now, you can't take it back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's do charts. Uh, number two for Everything Must Go. Number one. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I hoist by my own petard. You win. Okay. I'm going to go certification. Okay. Went platinum. Where? UK. Okay. I went platinum in Europe. I went three times platinum in the UK. You lose. Ah, balls. Yeah. Okay. So that brings us obviously onto the sales then. What have you got in terms of sales? I'm going to lose. <laughs> an impressive 500,000. That is an impressive 500,000. And as we'll talk about next week, it is their most commercially successful record, uh, but it's not 2 million copies, which no. is what everything must go sold. <laughs> so I win that and am now up to one. All right, critic scores. All music, four and a half out of five. Ditto. Q. Four out of five. Also four out of five. Oh, dear me. Neck and neck. NME, eight out of ten. Ditto. Draw. Oh, it's a dead heat. Dead heat. Wow. Okay, there you go. So you can snatch a draw. I don't think you're going to, but you can snatch a draw. So last category is awards. So... Everything Must Go was nominated for the Mercury Music Prize in 1997. It won three NME awards, including Best Album, and quite famously, it won two Brit Awards, Best British Group, and Best British Album. So five fairly big awards there, and a Mercury nomination. What about telling stories? So officially, it won none. However, it certainly won the best album to be associated with the town of Northwich. (laughs) 
which is a prestigious award prestigious just made up yes <laughs> i would actually debate whether it's the best album to be associated with the town of northwich because you are therefore saying it is the best charlatans album i'm not entirely sure i agree with you on that no actually i i would actually agree with your point because there's another <laughs> album i actually like more of theirs but anyway <laughs> i needed to try and give them something that it won no awards <laughs> not even any nominations no that's ridiculous. Yeah, like for for an album that had done really well, criminally overlooked. But the Charlatans have never been the the most fashionable band. But we'll get on to that when we speak about them next week. We will indeed. Yeah. So um, I win that, which means we are level at three apiece. Shite. I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have taken giving you the point or giving giving it a draw on the first on the uh, the, the pitchfork one. I mean, you'd still have lost, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have just lost 3-2 instead yeah, of 3-1. It would have been closer. <laughs> it would have been closer, yeah. But anyway, uh, yep, I win. So uh, get in. Choose wisely for next week, Kevin. Choose wisely. Well, not next week. You know what I mean, for two yeah. weeks' time. Okay. <laughs> anything else or should we start going through Everything Must Go? I think we should start going through the album. Okay, well, you say start going through the album. We've got a bit to go through before we get to the album. There's quite a bit of back backstory. Yeah, there is. There is. So, okay, just a couple of the high-level facts. Everything Must Go, fourth studio album by Manic Street Preachers, released on the 20th of May, 1996 on Epic Records. It was recorded at uh, Chateau Rougemont in Normandy in France, produced, as I said earlier, by Mike Hedges. And I'll come on to why later on. Benson's lad. <laughs> nice <laughs> privets lad <laughs> right before we get on to the recording of the album we've got to talk about richie yeah you can't really talk about this album without talking about richie no so for people who don't know manic street preachers were initially a four-piece frontman uh vocalist and lead guitarist james dean bradfield drummer Sean Moore, bassist Nicky Wire, and rhythm guitarist and main lyricist Richie James Edwards. In 1994, they released their third album, The Holy Bible, and it's a dark old album. The songs on that album, there are themes of imperialism, fascism, the Holocaust, anorexia, and... It very much reflected Rich's state of mind at the time. So he'd long had difficulties with substance abuse and mental health, self-harm. There was a notorious incident in 1991 when, after a gig in Norwich, then enemy journalist Steve Lamatt was interviewing Richie. And during the interview, he carved with a razor blade into his forearm for real. I, I seem to recall that was in response to some kind of comment that they were, you, you know, that they were performative or so, something like that, that it, it was all an act. And obviously Richie's yes. response was to say, no, we are for real. Look. Exactly. The reason I want to talk about that in particular is something we're going to, we're going to come on to a bit, a bit later. We're going to talk about Manix fans later, but there's a time that I want to talk yeah. about Manix fans. So the that picture with Richie having carved that into his into his arm was published in the NME with that interview, and I think that was a huge mistake. Oh God, yeah. I mean, there's there's no getting past it. It glamorised self harm. Exactly. That would never happen now. That would never be published now. 
it would be a case of, well, I would hope, stop the interview, you need help. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the, it, it was someone who was not, they were not well. Like, they literally carved yeah. something into their arm. That's not That's not the behaviour of someone who's completely together at that time. No, precisely. So, yeah, Richie had a history, as I said, of, of, of mental health issues. And that was very much poured out into the songs on Holy Bible. The album was a commercial failure. And it's it's not it's not a surprise that it was a commercial failure. It's a tough old listen at times. I like the Holy Bible, but you have to be in the mood for it. Yeah. Like Generation Terrorists and particularly Gold Against the Souls are much easier, um, much more sort of commercially accessible yes, album as well. Yes, it is. Um yeah. Holy Bible's a tough listen. It is. So, Richie checked himself into rehab at the Priory Clinic. He was checked out of rehab in time to go on a a headline tour of the UK, which culminated quite famously with three nights at the Astoria in London. And at the end of the final night, the band basically trashed the kit on stage, uh, apparently causing £36,000 worth of damage, which is quite some feat. It's impressive, that. (laughs) So in the 2016 documentary, uh, Escape from History, Sean Moore said, because Holy Bible didn't do as expected, we were on the back foot, just waiting for that moment when the record company would say, that's it, we spent enough money on you. With the Astoria, the way we trash the gear, we pretty much thought that was going to be it for us. Despite that, in January 95, the band immediately basically went into sessions to start demoing songs for a new album. So those demos would become No Surface or Feeling, Further Away, and Small Bat Flowers That Grow in the Sky. Uh, On that same documentary I mentioned, James Dean Bradfield said, on the day the session finished, we all packed our bags. Nick and Sean went back to Wales. Richie and I drove down to London, ready to go to America the next day for a promotional trip. We drove to the Embassy Hotel in Bayswater, which was the last place I saw Richie. That was the 31st of January, 1995. And that's the last day Richie Edwards was confirmed as being seen alive. Okay. So when JDB couldn't get hold of Richie the next morning when they were due to go to the airport, he contacted Martin Hall, who who was the band's manager. Um, Martin Hall said to, to James, get to the airport, catch a flight. He'd find Richie and stick him on the next plane. Uh, Martin Hall went to the hotel, went to Richie's room, The room was empty, but the bath was full of water. And he found a shoebox containing some books, uh, some videos, and a note saying merely, I love you. Uh, An increasingly concerned Martin Hall filed a missing persons report at Notting Hill Police Station. He drove then to Cardiff, went to Richie's flat with the police. At Richie's flat, they found his passport and his credit cards but no Richie. Over the coming weeks, the police pieced together some of his final, well, seemingly final movements. At around 7am on the 1st of February, he checked out of the Embassy Hotel, drove to Cardiff in his Vauxhall Cavalier, 90s. Once driven, forever smitten. (laughs) (laughs) We've done that before. (laughs) So he then appears to have been, over the next couple of weeks, living in his car. And on the 13th of February, 95, that car was found at the Ulster service station on the M4 near the Severn Bridge, which is a renowned suicide spot. He had also, uh, in the sort of two weeks leading up to this, um, withdrawing nearly £3,000 in cash from ATM machines. Various reports 
emerged um, of sightings of him, his whereabouts between the 1st of February and, and the discovery of his car on the 13th of February. So apparently on the 5th of February, 95, a Mannix fan claimed to have met and spoken with him at a bus station in Newport in South Wales. On the 7th of February, a taxi driver claimed to have driven a man matching Richie's description from Newport to his hometown in Blackwood in South Wales. Apparently he'd asked the cabbie to avoid major roads and he paid the £68 fare in cash. But Richie was never seen again. And despite numerous alleged sightings in the years since, including one that was famously reported all over the music press in um, 1997, where he'd been spotted in Goa in India, at the request of his family, he was officially declared presumed dead on or since the 1st of February 95. And that was on the 24th of November 2008. Yeah, an incredibly sad episode, really. And mm. I think this is the point to start talking about Manix fans and that. Because you like if you had any kind of dealings with them in the nineties, there was a rumor of a rumor that Richie had been spotted with Lord Lucan and fucking Shergar. I mean, there, there's a reference for the kids. <laughs> you know, the there was always a sighting. There was always, and it was just bollocks. And I understand that they wanted the fella to come to come back, but keeping the whole thing going for your own selfish purposes or for whatever reason people did it is that it was incredibly damaging and hurtful to his family. Thank you, and to to his surviving bandmates. You know, for them it was a trauma. They lost their mate. A hundred percent. Thank you so much. That was exactly my perception as well. It was an obsession, and I I think it's part of that glorification of, of the mental health issues, of the depression, of the self-harm, that he became deified, for want of a better, for want of a better phrase. And I'm not going to lie, at the time, it was a bit of a joke. We'd laugh at Mannix fans because they were easy to mock. Yeah. But... I'd like to think again, that just wouldn't happen now. The whole thing is just a very unsavory episode. It is. And you, as, as, as you sort of alluded to earlier, uh, hopefully at the point of the interview with Steve Lamack and obviously everything like that, you would hope there would be an intervention then. And maybe we've, you know, there's too many people that's been through the ringer. So you, you know, you watch something like the Amy Winehouse uh, Mm -hmm. documentary the media machine chews her up and spat her out. And Richie, you know, was an earlier victim of that. Absolutely. And, and generally, guys, I'm not trying to denigrate mental health. So please don't think we're trying to be dismissive of that. You know, quite the opposite. We're trying to say that at this time in the 90s, in our youth, it just wasn't It just wasn't something that was recognised as a societal issue. Yeah, so obviously everything that we've said is to, is to do with... And recognizing that, like this was this was a tragedy. The la- the last thing I want to say on this, please, if anyone is feeling vulnerable, is feeling, for want of a better word, triggered by anything we've just spoken about, please talk to someone, whether that's someone close to you, whether it's someone completely independent. Get the help you need. Do not suffer alone. Yeah, and I can I completely echo echo that. Everyone suffers with mental health to some extent at some point in their life, and it's not a thing to be ashamed of. A hundred percent. I feel a bit superficial saying this, but should we talk about some music? <laughs> no, I think, like, 
the thing the thing is is that because of the nature of this story and particularly this album you can't talk about the context of the album without going into this you have to we do have to and i i hope we've treated the subject matter with the delicacy and respect that it deserves Shall we get into the recording of Everything Must Go? What happened next? (laughs) Well, for six months, nothing. February 95, the remaining three members of the Mannix went their separate ways and tried to completely forget about music. So Sean Moore said, at that time, I'd managed to buy a property in Bristol. I think it was just to forget about everything we'd done. I just totally detached myself. So he basically spent six months renovating a house. And around that time, Sean heard the song that I mentioned on Can't Get You Out My Head, Yes, by McCarmont of Butler, which was produced, as I mentioned, by Mike Hedges. Now, the Mannix had tried to get Mike Hedges to produce Holy Bible, but scheduling conflicts prevented that from happening. But basically, after having experienced this real personal tragedy of losing someone so close to you, and having tried to forget about the music industry uh, and completely devote yourself to something different, hearing that song rekindled Sean Moore's enthusiasm for music. So basically, the band decided we don't split up, we carry on. That's what we need to do for themselves as much as for anyone else. That is a really, really important aspect of this album. So JDB... Uh, He said, we decided the only way we could decide if we could carry on as a band was to try and write and see how it felt. So Nick sent me up some lyrics from South Wales. I think it was just two lyrics. One was called Pure Motive. One was called Design for Life. That was an amazing moment for me because after the intense lyrics that Richie mostly wrote for Holy Bible, I needed a different inspiration because at this point we were trying to escape things. After walking away from that demo session with Richie, I didn't feel as if we'd started a record. I really didn't know what a new record from us would sound like. But as soon as I heard us play Design for Life together six months later, I knew what the album we were going to make was going to sound like. So I mentioned Spectatastic about Yes. That is very much a sound that the band wanted to create. That's why they wanted to get Mike Hedges on board. So they approached him. He then went down to see them rehearse in Cardiff, saw them play Design for Life, and basically said, well, that's your jukebox song. And he said, it was a hit the second I heard it. So from having wanted to completely isolate themselves from everything that had gone on from the music industry to Shawmore hearing this phenomenal soundscape of a song that Yes is, for that planting a seed into his head, the songwriting process starting again, They rehearse it, and through those rehearsal sessions, they've got Design for Life. And that's the seed of what was to become Everything Must Go. They knew they were onto something, right from the off, really. Yeah, and I mean, we will definitely talk about this when we get into into the songs and that. But the album, like the sound of it, it's fucking huge. Like, it's it's a big out-sounding album. So you can you can see the lineage, you know, from Yes, because it, it runs right through this album. It does indeed. Okay, so in October 1995, so this is still only, what, nine months after Richie's disappearance, uh, the band and Mike Hedges decamped to Chateau Rougemont in Normandy, as I said, to start work on the album. The first song they recorded in those sessions was not 
a song that appeared on Everything Must Go. Do you know what it was? I don't know. It was a cover of Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, which appeared on the War Child Help album. I, so I was aware that they covered it, and I think on a later version of this album, um, I think a Japanese version, they included a cover on there as well. Yes, indeed. So another quote from Mike Hedges. He said, there was a certain amount of tension before we started the recording. Uh, They'd been asked to do a track for the Help album, so we did that first. I think for them it was a much easier way to start. It just made it all so much easier from that point. Yeah, like they they got to record something without the pressure of it being the Mannix recording a new song without Richie. Absolutely. Uh, Okay, the last thing I want to say about background and recording, etc., is... The mixing desk at Chateau Rougemont had previously been in use at Abbey Road, and it is the mixing desk on which Pink Floyd recorded Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, interesting. Hmm. So, JDB said, I don't think we've ever got that sound back without that desk. It was an essential part of the album. Okay. Uh, Okay, I've got nothing else on background. Shall we talk about the artwork? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, the artwork is designed by Mark Farrow, who had done a lot of work with Factory Records, in particular New Order. It's really simple. Yeah. It's a pastel blue background, a pastel blue shelf, and there's a photograph of each of the three band members on the shelf. That's... That's it. Yeah, it's it's a really simple. Like I think it's important as well because it's the first one of their albums that they're actually on the cover of. Indeed, it is in stark contrast to the first three album covers, which were much more striking, visually arresting. Mm-hmm. Let's say, particularly Holy Bible, the, the the image that that's on the front of that. It's a Lucian Freud painting, isn't it, on the front? Of- yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, and as you said, it's the first time they'd appeared on uh, on one of their own album covers. Nice font. It, it's very good font. Yes, absolutely. Nice plain font. I, that's, <laughs> I agree. I, I like the pastel blue colour as well. It's quite a striking colour. And like I think, as, as you say, the simplicity of it is what works about it. The, it stands out because of its simplicity and it, like the boldness of the colours. So on that, uh, I would like to read a quote from uh, Nicky Wire, the never understated bassist <laughs> from the Manic Street Preachers. So Nicky Wire said, Everything was less about us as personalities and giving depth to the piece of art we were trying to create, which again separated us from greyhounds, can't think what he's talking about there, and raised eyebrows and archness and humour. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so how did you discover Everything Must Go, Kev? I'd heard some manic stuff beforehand. So I'd heard some stuff off Gold Against Soul, some stuff off Generation Terrorists, and bits and bobs off the Holy Bible. There was a girl on on my bus who was a Mannix fan with a tiny backpack. And yeah, the, like she was going on and on about how amazing they were. Um, but it, it was really this album that um, particularly when you first you first saw the video for Design for Life, and it was such a massive single at the time as well, that it, drew, it drew me in. And I bought the album pretty soon after. Very, very similar for me. The first Manic song I remember hearing was actually the cover of Suicide is Painless, the theme from MASH, uh, because I had that on. I had the greatest hits of 1992 <laughs> when it was on there. But yeah, I was familiar with the Manics, familiar with a few of their songs. But when I heard Design for Life, sort of idiot for Design for Life, I was all in from that point. And like mm-hmm. you said, bought the album then. So um, yeah, 
I'm ready to start going through the album itself. I think I think the audience will probably be um, hoping that <laughs> we would, that we actually start talking about the music now. <laughs> okay, we start with Elvis impersonator Blackpool Pier. The first verse of this song was written by Richie. The second verse was written by Nicky Wire after Richie's disappearance. So the uh, yeah the the, se- the second verse was the, the, where the line the future's dead burn a memory that was written by Nicky Wire. It's such a Nicky Wire line as well, and that's not that's not me having a pop at Nicky Wire. Um, his politics are very much on on his sleeve as as are the bands, and yeah, it's it's a very Nicky Wire uh, way of phrasing stuff. Hold that thought for a couple of minutes. <laughs> uh, the end of the song features a sort of echoey recording of, uh, and it's the band themselves, it's not a sample, it's the band themselves playing a cover of Elvis Presley's American Trilogy. And it's, well, I've said it's a really brave start to the album to start it with a harp, crushing waves, a harp, and then an acoustic guitar. Considering what you've had on the first three albums and what you've been through on Holy Bible. It's a really, really brave start, I think. I, I completely agree with it. To jump into that sound, which is so different from Holy Bible, and having a, like the, the first song in itself, not just using a harp, having that much more layered sound. It's not as abrasive as some of their previous stuff, like even stuff off Generation Terrorists, like some of it. Yes. It's not, it's much more punky. Like this has a much more commercial sound to it, but it works, it works really well. And, Sean Moore's drums, like yeah. they, they are so important to this album. And right from, from the first song, they are so prominent in the mix and they are yeah. they're crucial to it. They absolutely are. As as I said earlier, like this is a massive sounding album. It it does not sound like anything they've done before. No, it doesn't. And like this song, I've all I always liked it as an opener. Yep, it's a great opener. Yeah, it's it works really well. Absolutely, it does. So the sound, because we talked a lot about the sound, the orchestration, the, the, the huge sound, etc. This is very much Mike Hedges' influence. James Dean Bradfield had originally envisioned sound this sounding much more similar to some of the stuff on Holy Bible, like Faster, for example, which is a great song. Mm-hmm. In an interview with The Quietus in 2016, JDB said, this was very different to start off with. It's a prime example of how close you are to a track going in the wrong direction. After we'd done Raindrops on that first day, Mike said, go through all the songs acoustically because we haven't got demos for them. So I screamed, limited face paint and dyed black quiff. And he was a bit like, there's a really good song there, but what you're doing is fucking awful. (laughs) (laughs) And I kind of knew it, but I was still stuck in the Holy Bible mindset a bit. And he said, just play it slow. And I did. And it's, it's a little funny story that but it speaks to how they understood the need to let go of what they had been. Yeah. And in my notes, I've made a point of this a bit later, but well, it's it's perfectly fair to bring it up now. James, JZB on on this on this album sounds great because he's actually he's actually singing. Yes. Like a lot of the stuff, particularly on Holy Bible, is he shouting, and like it, that's that's effective and it works. But on these songs, he is actually properly singing, and yep. the songs are so much better for it. And like, obviously, that quote absolutely backs that up. Yep, I agree entirely with that. And with that, I suggest we move on to "Design for Life." Belter, have you got much to say about this? I've not. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's all right. <laughs> okay, so it was the first single uh, from the album, released on the 15th of April, 1996. It reached number two in the UK, which up to that point was their highest charting single. James Dean Bradfield and The Quietest said it's obvious what that song's about. Design for Life is still the best lyric that describes working class emotions and ambitions. Well, the very first lines. Libraries gave us power. That opening line is inspired by the inscription above a library in Newport in South Wales, which says knowledge is power. What an opening line. What yes, an opening it's, line. It's like it just brings a smile to my face. It is a brilliant opening line, as is the next one, albeit the inspiration for that is somewhat darker. Mm-hmm. So the next line is, then work came and made us free. Kev, do you know what that was inspired from? I do. <laughs> it was inspired by the gates at Auschwitz. Arbeit macht fly. Indeed. But then the, the, the chorus is what I really want to call out, mm-hmm. because it just takes furious aim at class bias, misconceptions of the working classes. We don't talk about love. We only want to get drunk. And we are not allowed to spend, as we are told, that this is the end. We've talked about statements. We've talked about manifesto songs before. This is a literal manifesto, this song. It is. And what I what I really want to bring or highlight in, in relation to this song is we can, you know, rhapsodize about the, the lyricism, the, the amazing... The, mu- the music, the the layering. What I what I really want to highlight is is how cleverly put together it is. So you've got the gorgeous strings and simplicity to the verse, and then you have this huge bombastic chorus, and everyone's absolutely on it. It is perfectly balanced. It's so well put together. Yeah, it is. It's got that Phil Spector wall of sound quality, and that is a that is a really simple comparison to make, but it's got, as you said, the strings, the percussion through the verse is quiet. And then the huge, the drums again, not only Sean Moore's mm-hmm. drums, which are incredible, but the timpanis to accompany that, that yeah. orchestral sound, it's fucking phenomenal. It's got one of the most anthemic choruses you could think of. It's absolutely iconic and the way it is accessible to your indie boys who just want to bounce around and say, we only want to get drunk, but also speaks to, as I said, class bias. It's a phenomenal achievement. Everyone involved in the writing, the recording of this song deserves immense praise. Yeah, without without question. I also want to extend that praise to the director of the video, Pedro Romani. Because the video rams home that message. You've got the band playing. I think it's recorded at the Roundhouse, the video. But interwoven with that, you've got slogans, Hope Lies in the Proles from 1984. Mm -hmm. You've got footage of games of polo interspersed with footage of football fans on the piss. It is a perfectly pitched video to a perfectly pitched song. Yeah, and the Manics haven't always been as successful as they are within this song in terms of representing their politics and representing their view. Sometimes the Manics clobby around the head <laughs> with this is what we think. But <laughs> like what I what I always appreciate from them and throughout their career, they have done it 
not always as well, but they have snuck stuff in and Mm -hmm. raised the consciousness or raised the bar of merging pop music with culture and and that kind of thing and that's so you know like as as we said the the holy bible cover has a painting by lucian freud on the front of it i'll go further and it's not a song on this album their first number one in the uk was a song about the spanish civil war yeah which you know like if you talk if you tolerate this and you didn't you didn't really pay attention to the lyrics or anything like that then it's just it's it's quite a good song but if I can't shoot rabbits, why can't why can't I shoot fascists? You know, like lines lines like that, which mm-hmm. you know, as I say, are raising the consciousness, and like that's part of their manif- I suppose manifesto, really. Yeah, as is, well, it comes back to what I said. This yeah. is a literal manifesto for me. This song, the evisceration of class bias. You can draw parallels to a lot of what Jarvis Cocker was singing on his and hers, and in particular on different class. There are common people. Nicky Wire himself isn't necessarily a fan of such comparisons. So I mentioned the article, The Quietest in 2016. In that, he said, it was a reaction to the arch raised eyebrows of bands like Pulp. That was my only problem with Pulp. It always seemed to be done with such a sense of irony and everything was presented as some sort of carry-on film, which is anathema to me. I think that is harsh. I think it's wrong, personally, like... The obviously Nicky Wise is entitled to to his own his own viewpoint. I think it's it's fairer to throw that particularly at that era blur. Thank you. May I read my next question? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so Nicky Wyatt again. So this is from that documentary on Sky Arts I mentioned. He said again of Design for Life. This is definitely a reaction to Park Life Britain, shall we say? Some sort of patronisation of the working classes who were being bypassed and turned into some on the buses caricature of working class Britain. And it felt like it was being done by people who weren't even working class. That was definitely starting to gnaw away at me. So, yes. Well, and like it, so Damon Albarn, and certainly when you've heard interviews with Justin Freeshman as well, in relation to a song like Girls and Boys, is that Damon was, was an observer of it. Yes. And I think that's kind of what Nicky Wire is getting at. The it's reportage as opposed to speaking your truth. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole, as we all want to do. Shall we move on to Kevin Carter, or do you have anything else to say about Design for Life? No, I think we should. Uh, I think we should move on. All right. So Kevin Carter was the third single from the album. It was released in the UK on the thirtieth of September, nineteen ninety-six, and it reached number nine. Uh, the lyrics were entirely written by Richie, and the trumpet solo is played by Sean Moore. Classically trained Sean Moore in the trumpet. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And something I also learned researching this podcast, that Sean Moore is James Dean Bradfield's cousin. Is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. Anyway, Kevin Carter is about... Kevin Carter. The titular <laughs> South African photographer, Kevin Carter. Um, so he won the... Pulitzer Prize in 1994 for his photo depicting uh, the famine in, in Sudan titled The Little Girl and the Vulture. It was actually a boy, but, you know, never mind. I mean, it's a, I don't know if you've ever seen that image, but it's really harrowing. Yeah. It's a starving child with a vulture in the background, standing in wait, one might say. 
Well, yeah, and he also was very famous for his fo- his photographs in in Soweto in South Africa. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what the practice was called. It was essentially putting like a burning necklacing necklacing. That's it. Putting a burning tie around some someone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, there's not many there's not many bands who were getting top ten singles about a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer. Well, a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer who had ended his own life yeah. as well. Click, 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 click yourself under. Exactly. So just to bring the story of Kevin Carter, the photographer, to a close, he had become so affected by what he'd seen uh, that on the 27th of July, 1994, he committed suicide by suffocation in his car. His suicide note read, the pain of life overrides the joy to the point that joy does not exist. I am haunted by the vivid memories of killings and corpses and anger and pain of starving or wounded children or trigger happy madmen, often police of killer executioners. That doesn't scream to me top 10 single. No, no, not, not at all. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's a belting song. It is a belting song. I wasn't so keen on this at the time. I've got to be honest. It was never one of my favorite tracks on the album. But I really, really like it now. I like the way that the lyrics juxtapose the success he achieved through his photographs with the savagery of what he had photographed. I like the way the sound is much more paired back to both of the tracks that you've heard so far. I think the what I described as jagged descending guitar chords through the verse give it a really sort of edgy feel to it. Mm-hmm. I really like Kevin Carter. Say at the time I wasn't too keen. Listening back now, big fan of this. Um, I, I liked it at the time. Um, one of the things that elevates this song as well, it's a fucking brilliant trumpet solo by it Sean Moore. It's yes, it so is. good. It is so yeah, it is so good. It's and it's it's very disarming. It's not what you're expecting in 1996. No, especially when it's the Manics. You're expecting a JDB Whiddly Whiddly guitar solo, but nope. In comes Sean Moore. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, I've, I've got not I've got nothing more to add. Where there's brass, there's gold. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Big fan of Kevin Carter. Okay, Anola Alone is the next track. Yeah, it's written by Nicky Wire. And it's reflecting on the loss, not just of Richie, but also of their former co-manager, Philip Hall, brother of Martin, um, who died of cancer in 1993. So another quote from the Quietus. I remember being in my room in the evening, looking at a picture from my wedding, which had Philip and Richie, which was only two years previous. Both of them were gone. I think the key line is, all I want to do is live no matter how miserable it is, that absolutely summed up everything I was at the time. What do you think of Anola Alone? I really like it. The The guitar work is great. Again, it's it's got that huge sound to it. Yeah, I, I, really, I really like this song. As do I. So the sound of it can be credited to Oasis. James Dean Bradfield from that same Quietus article I can't deny Anola Alone wouldn't sound the way it does without the first Oasis album. It just wouldn't. Uh, and to me, you can tell the heavy distortion on the guitars. Oh, God, the anthemic. The fake-out ending. Oh, it's brilliant, isn't it? it when it comes back in. It's very Oasis, that. It's um, a really, really good song, Anola Alone. It's one that there's a, there's a chorus you can sing and sing and sing. Yeah. Again, 
if you can get high enough for the falsetto <laughs> parts at least. Not conducive to my voice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, good song. Shall we go on? Yeah, and we'll go on to an absolute fucking behemoth. We will go on to an absolute fucking behemoth. It's the title track, Everything Must Go. Uh, this was the second single from the album. It was released on the 22nd of July, 96. It reached number five in the UK. It also reached number 29 on, get ready for it, Kev, the Eurochart Hot 100. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of an opening to a song, it's fucking huge again. It's like... And like we're going to reference Phil Spector throughout this, that opening is is massive, and it pulls you in straight away. Yeah, it does. It is more, even more than the design for life. It is so wall of sound. Yeah, it's just fucking huge. You know, like and again, Sean Sean Moore's drumming is so important. Like I, I noted down Hawaii Five O drums. <laughs> The timpanis, yeah. The t- so that's not that's not sure more. That's the orchestra, yeah. But yes, they're great. But like his drumming in in conjunction is yeah, it's great. It just comes at you this, and it just clobbers you around the head with immense noise. The guitars, and it's another one that musically it's simple. Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, breakdown, chorus, end, done. Yeah. Two and a half minutes, you're done. And it's massive with it, but there's none of that peripheral muso stuff that you often get with Manic songs. And that's, as I say, it's not to criticise their early stuff. I love their early stuff. But this just, again, signifies the musical change of direction. Yeah, and how, how sort of prominent the orchestration is in the mix. I've got a note here. It's like being twatted round the head with some flowers. <laughs> We're not listening to the Smiths. <laughs> but like it is, it's it's being beaten, but with something beautiful. That is a very, very good way of putting it. I want to talk about the lyrics and then I want to talk about what the lyrics mean. And I'm going to come back to talking about Manix fans. Yeah. Right. So freed from the memory, escape from our history. And I just hope you can forgive us, but everything must go. I mean, you can't get a much clearer statement than that. No, and like even if you didn't get that, Nikki Y has been very clear that this is this is a song about moving on. So I'm gonna read some quotes as I always do. Sorry guys. JDB, it's a very personal for us, a cathartic moment. It's a plea to our fan base. Nikki Wire, we weren't doing it in response to Twitter or whatever, because that wasn't even there. There were just the fanzines and the lettuce pages of Melody Maker and NME. The best quote and the one that sums it all up comes from their publicist, Terry Hall, Philip Hall's widow. On the documentary Freed from Memories, which came out in 2016, she said, there was a lot of flack from fans, certainly fans of the cult of Richie, as it was called. There was such a barrage of, you can't possibly continue. You have to change your name. You can't do this to Richie's memory. And it's a very polite way of saying, we will do exactly what we want to do. We don't need your permission. We will continue. Fucking spot on. Yeah. And it's not subtle, but it is It is like, nah, we are doing it our way. This is our band. Yeah. And we are, mo- we are moving on Soz. The cult of Richie. What a phenomenal phrase, Yeah, actually. Because it perfectly describes that type of Mannix fan. And again, guys, I'm sorry if if you were the one of the Feather Boa gang eyeliner 
tiny backpacks, as Kev said. <laughs> Seriously, what the fuck was in those tiny backpacks? Like, honestly, what you could you get in them? You couldn't like you couldn't get anything in them, like <laughs> a purse. But like, what's the fucking point? <laughs> what's the point? It's on your back. It's like it's easy to rob. <laughs> Ludicrous. <laughs> and it has to be said that so these were a group of Mannix fanatics who were mostly teenage girls not entirely but they were mostly teenage girls and i think it i think it, i think it's really important that you reference them not as fans but fanatics yes and they seem to have this sense of entitlement of ownership of the band and of the band's image and the visceral reaction of some of them to this album and to this album's success was bizarre it's not your thing you don't own it the birth of toxic fandom. We've we've joked about Zack Snyder fans before, but it's the it's the same mentality for me. Yeah, and it's it's. I mean, you get it in fans of every band because there's always someone who was there from the start, or at least claims to be. Um, yeah, I saw them their first gig at the Dog and Duck, and you, and you see, this is this is part of a problem. This is why I think the cult of Richie is a great phase because I knew people that were younger than me and who claimed to be part of this. Manix fandom. I'm so sorry. You absolutely weren't. You were nine years old when Generation Terrorists came out. Sorry, you weren't. It's just strange. It's a strange mentality that that is so much more amplified today by social media. That um, I'm really sorry, guys. If you were one of those people, it feels like I'm having a go at you. And well, I am. <laughs> <laughs> you are having a go at them, but that's because it is. It was an early progenitor of, as you say, uh, toxic fandom. And the fact that the band felt the need to write a song, uh, not even, it could have been a B-side. It could have been an album track. No, no, no. It's the title song of the album. To basically say to those people, we love you, but we'll do what the fuck we want. Speaks volumes to me. Yeah. It's that they needed to answer them. Yes. Anyway, the last thing I want to say about everything must go. I mean, I, I fucking love it. I think it's a brilliant song. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful piece of work. The last thing I want to say is there is a, well, for people of a certain era and uh, who enjoyed playing games on the PlayStation, there is a very famous remix of this song. Fucking brilliant remix. It is brilliant. So the Chemical Brothers remixed Everything Must Go. It is fucking brilliant. And... That remix uh, was the music for the opening sequence of the very first Gran Turismo game. And, oh my God. So exciting. It is so exciting. Exactly. It's so exciting. It's fucking brilliant. It's that bit. It's that build up. Uh, if you've not heard it, it's a fucking brilliant remix. Go listen to it. Check it out. It is really good. Okay. Uh, we come right down. We talked about pace changes before. And wow, we go down to small black flowers that grow in the sky. So before I talk about what it's about, what do you think? I think it's beautiful. The delicate balance of the acoustic guitar, James Dean Bradfield's voice, and the harp. It yeah. works It works so well. You can tell very much so that this was uh, something Richie had worked on. Um, yes. It very much has his stamp on it. But it's it's beautiful. And it, like as a, you know, as you said, like the palate cleanser, the you've had five songs that are fucking massive and huge in sound, and you've got something that's so simple and so stripped back. It, it works really well. I agree. It is beautiful. I think the harp, again, is a really brave choice compared to... Well, again, I'm going to go back to what's the most 
slowed down song on any of their first three albums. It's probably This Is Yesterday. And I love This Is mm-hmm. Yesterday. I think it's a great song of Holy Bible. But even that's, you know, it's, it's electric guitars and there's guitar solos in it. Anyway, this is a huge, huge step change for the Mannix musically. It is beautiful. The harp makes this song. It gives it that wistful lament. Yeah, it's a, a lovely balance between, as you say, the wistful, haunting nature of the harp and the brooding lament of um, JDB's voice. It, it, the, the juxtaposition between the two works works so well. Yeah, it does. It does. So I just want to talk about what it's about. As you said, it's written by Richie. Basically, it's about animals bred in captivity for the entertainment of the public. Mm-hmm. So you have your very own number. They dress your cage in its nature. Once you roared, now you just grunt lame, pace around pathetic pound games. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece of music. Mm-hmm. It's really dark. Again, yeah. for an album that has such commercial and critical acclaim in this era of vibrancy that we've talked about, it is a really, really dark song. Yeah, without it's question. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay, shall we go on to The Girl Who Wanted to Be God? Yeah, I think we should. Uh, it's another one written by Richie. Uh, well, and Mickey Wire. He contributed as well. The title of the song is taken from one of Sylvia Plath's Letters Home. So, in all seriousness here, and I do mean in all seriousness, even though I've just laughed. So he's written Kevin Carter about a fella that's killed himself. He's now naming a song after a fucking Sylvia Plath quote. Come on, guys. How did you not spot these warning signs? <laughs> yeah. I'm really sorry to be flippant about it, but come on. No, I, I, it's, a, it's a fair point to make. I fucking love this song. When I first heard the album and when I, when I was younger, wasn't too keen on it. Listening to it back now, absolutely buzzed off hearing it again. It's back to that huge sound of the album. The drums, <laughs> massive in it. It's it's really good, and it's it's one of those ones like that you don't think of on this album as being as catchy. So like since I listened to the album earlier in the week, I've had this song sort of bobbing around my head. It's mm-hmm. it's really catchy. It is really catchy. I've I've always loved it. I loved this even back in the day. To me, this is the one that has the most direct lineage to yes, with the sound of the strings and the sound of the guitars, actually, for that matter. The string part in the chorus is actually inspired by Dancing Queen by ABBA. <laughs> and you can hear it as well. Did a little 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 anyway. Hey, look, they're not they're not bad fellas to um to rip off. No, they could write a catchy tune, couldn't they? Oh yeah, like those bearded fellas, great at putting together furniture and a well-constructed <laughs> song. <laughs> but, but again, this is one where the Mike Hedges influence was the right way to go. So back to Nicky Wire. Uh, apparently that this wasn't the first version they'd recorded of the song. He said they did a version with Stephen Haig. Douglas's lad. <laughs> nice. <laughs> because we thought we'd like a version that sounded like Regret by New Order. Really shiny and poppy, but it just didn't work. We redid it with Mike. We used a bit of the drums and the bass line from the original session. It's fucking great. I was always surprised this wasn't a single, actually. That's how much I love it. It is It is quite poppy sounding, but like it's manic scope pop. I know what you mean. Really, really good song. Okay. Removables. 
Apparently Removables was the first song written from the album and Richie wrote it all the way back in 1993 uh, before the Holy Bible sessions. And you can hear that. You can hear that. It's, um, well, aimless rut of my own perception, numbly waiting for voices to tell me, for voices to tell me, all Removables, all transitory, all Removables, passing always. It's a bleak old song, that. And in terms of the album, like, the opening is very unlike anything else. It's much more stripped back. It's got a rawer sound to it. It sounds like earlier Mannix. And obviously from when it's written, yeah, the, it, it does. So lyrically, it sounds like earlier Mannix. I don't think it does musically. The, the sort of opening guitar chord sounds more like Eagle Eye Cherry than it does the Mannix. <laughs> Uh, no, like, you know, that sort of builds to, to the chorus and then you get that really chunky sort of cut, like that's more... No, I get it. I, I get it. I, I've always flitted back and two on this song as to what I think about it. I think it starts really oddly. I think that start is really odd for a Manic song. And then I think, I don't know if they struggle to end it or what, but the end, it, it just sort of stops. Mm-hmm. I like Removables, but even on this album, it sticks out a bit as not, being of any particular sound, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's kind of between stills, really. I do, I, I did always and still do like, particularly the chorus and the key, the key change in it. But most like this is the only song really on the album, particularly at the end, where we've gone back to James Dean Bradfield shouting. Yeah, definitely. But as you said, I do like the chorus. You can belt out the chorus. Yeah, I like it, but I don't love it. I have to say, yeah. Should we go to Australia? Well, I mean, this is this is a really stripped back, um, really <laughs> not at all bombastic song at all. It's absolutely huge, massive. Again, from the start, absolutely pulls you in. It's a very commercial sounding song. Yeah, it's another to me. It's another one that there's a direct lineage to, definitely, maybe, and the sound of the time. It, yeah, it's fucking huge. Just a couple of facts. It was the fourth and final single from the album. 2nd of December, 96, it was released. It was the fourth single to go in at num- in the top 10 in the UK, which is number seven. And it reached number 26 on the, say it with me, Kev, Eurochart Hot 100. <laughs> so before I actually talk about the song seriously, writing a song about a country, and particularly one that is so dependent on tourism, Absolutely, like they've boxed themselves off some Qantas dollars. Well, in fact, it was used by the Australian Tourism Board in their commercials. Indeed. <laughs> okay, so um, it's a song that Nicky Wire wrote about the pressures of being on the Holy Bible tour, mm-hmm. the pressures of that last tour with Richie. So he said, uh, at the time in Britain, Richie was high profile. Having real scummy tabloid journalists outside your door is incredibly unpleasant. I just wanted a symbol of escape. So it was basically as far away from South Wales as you can possibly get, which isn't actually true because New Zealand is further. But anyway, um, Christ, it's fucking huge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, you know, it's got a great hooky chorus. It's got lovely harmonies on it. And like, again, credit to the production as well. Because, like, at the start of the song, around the middle eight, the way it builds the anticipation leading to that sort of massive ending is great. And it absolutely, like, you can see that that working, in fact, have seen it working in a stadium. Yes. 
it's it's perfect for that kind of thing. It absolutely is. I um, didn't like this that much at the time. I thought it was too poppy. But then I was a dick, so what the fuck did I know? <laughs> well, you're a, teen- you're a teenage lad. Of course you were a dick. <laughs> exactly. Um, one last thing to say about it. We've talked about it being used on adverts of the Australian Tourist Board. Do you know where else it was used? Was it for Vegemite? No, it was used as the music for Girl of the Month on BBC's Football Focus. Right, okay. Really good song. Yeah, it is. Okay, track 10 is Interiors, open parentheses, song for Willem de Kooning, close parentheses. So, like, again, the Manics are referencing a bit of culture. So lads and girls in the 90s became aware of who Willem de Kooning was because there was a song on the Manics album. Would you like to explain to the listeners of today who Willem de Kooning was? So he was a, he was a Dutch artist. Dutch-American artist. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so he suffered with Alzheimer's, and the song is about that, and the fact that towards the end of his life, he couldn't recognise his own work, mm-hmm. basically. This is one that is made by the chorus. Yeah. The guitar riff in the chorus, the lyrics in the chorus. Again, it starts quite starkly with the sharp intake of breath, and then the song just you know straight mm-hmm. in. I really, really like it. Just... Again, if you're with your mates at a festival, they're playing this. You've got your warm pints of lager. Just fucking sing it. But as you said, there's something cultural for you to access if you want to. So, And it completely lulls you, this song. So it starts off and you think it's going to be a bit more restrained than what's, than what's gone before. And then you get this full bombastic chorus. And a fucking shredding solo in this song as well. Brilliant, yes. But yeah, it's really good. I really like it. As do I. Uh, Okay, we're starting to draw towards the end of the album now. Shall we go to further away? Yeah. So this was released in Japan only as a single in October 1996. As I mentioned right at the start, it was one of the songs that was demoed with Richie in January 1995. It is the rarest of things. It is a Manic Street Preacher's love song. Mm -hmm. It is a song written by Nicky Wire about missing his wife when they're on tour. The further away I get from you, the harder it is for everyone else. The happier I'm when I'm with you, the harder it gets when I am alone. I mean, it's good. (laughs) It's a good song. It's, It's quite poppy. The subject matter, the sound of it, it's very unmanic. It's not what you've heard from them before. No, it's... and I think I think importantly as well, the 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 thing that that really elevates this song is the, it's the organ. The organ's absolutely great in it, and it really adds depth to the song. Yeah, it's another it's another really solid bit poppy, but it's still like it's still there's always something there. Another chorus you can just sing. It's a really phenomenal and phenomenally brave collection of songs, this. Because with the exception of Small Black Flowers, which we said is a beautiful piece of music, but it's not exactly catchy. Every other song on this album has got a hook to it that can get stuck in your head. And for a band that had come off the back of a really dark album that was inaccessible to your mainstream audience, really brave to do this, but really inspired as well it's essentially what the manics did is like when carly put on the hot pants 
No, all I can think of is Nikki Wire in that white dress that she was wearing and the <laughs> the tiny little gold hot pants. <laughs> but it's it is like it is I mean, as you say, the bravery to not only say to their fans in a song, this is our thing, so we're gonna do what we want, and then come out with an album that 95% of it is completely different from anything you've done before mm-hmm. after yeah. you've just lost a core member of the band it yeah like fucking hell like the cojones like because that's a fucking risk you because it's massive you know they could they'd alienated a part of their fandom and had it not picked up commercially it could have fucked them but the fact is is that the songs are so strong and so good that that was never going to happen no and i'm just thinking about it there's probably an element of shit or bust after Holy Bible, they were expecting Epic to go, let's call it a day, lads. So this, and then Richie disappears. So they're probably thinking, you know, let's go balls to the wall, see what happens. And perhaps that, perhaps the tragedy and the trauma they'd been through gave them the freedom they needed to go, oh, fuck it. Because let's face it, the old fan base wasn't buying the records in enough numbers to keep them gainfully employed. Because that's the issue here. This is their job, and they were at risk of losing their job. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a simplistic way of saying it, but it's it's also factual. Yeah. You could continue down the um, the dark hole of the, the Holy Bible, but that wasn't going to gonna bring anything apart from more pain. Oh, exactly. Okay, and with that, shall we move on to the closer? No surface all feeling. Let's do it. And this is the only track on the album on which Richie plays. So this was also demoed in January 95. The demo is what makes it onto the record. So aside from the vocals, which they re-recorded in France, and then the, when it kicks back in for the solo at the end, that was also recorded in France. The, the musical track is the demo that was recorded. So as much as it may sound like it's a song about recovering from what's gone on. So what's the point in always looking back when all you see is more and more drunk? That's an anachronism. The lyrics were partly written by Richie and it was recorded before his disappearance. It's fucking brilliant. So (laughs) the opening of it sounds like the Pixies. Yes. You get this huge sound, quiet verse, fucking huge chorus. And it's great. I've always loved this. I think it's a great way to to finish the album because it's not as it's not as up tempo, but it's still got that same kind of vibe about it that the majority of the songs are, are on the album have. It's triumphant. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really good way of putting it. So you said the Pixies. I've also called out the Pixies. There's another band that I want to call out here: Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that. That opening riff, I could be listening to anything on Siamese Dream. Today is the obvious comparison. Mm -hmm. Um, But as you said, it's got that quiet, loud, quiet, loud Pixies uh, aesthetic to it. It is a definite standout track. And the kick back in and guitar solo at the end is a fucking brilliant way to end the album. And it's, it's to me, it's like it's JDB going, do you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to have one guitar solo on this album, and this is it. And I'm good. It's brilliant. I'm going to finish the album with a bit of whittling. <laughs> and that's, I have, I have no problem with that whatsoever. <laughs> uh, and we're done. Yeah, we, we're done. That is Everything Must Go. 12 tracks, and um, 
well, we've talked a lot about how different it was to what they'd done before. Shall we hear about what the music press thought about how different it was? Yes, we we should learn about that. Okay, so uh, for Rolling Stone, David Frick wrote a triumph of dignity and style over potentially crippling adversity. Everything Must Go is the most underrated album of the year. It is a record of painstaking melodic craft and thundering execution, a proclamation of physical and emotional cleansing. Can't argue with anything you said there, to be honest with you. Absolutely not. For Q Magazine, Tom Doyle said, musically, the group have returned to and indeed improved upon the epic pop rock of Gold Against the Soul, this time frequently topping it with lush strings and touches of celestial harmony. 12 tracks of emotionally driven commercial rock is what we're left with. And surely that's enough. The only message for the devoted comes from the reverb-laden Phil Spector-inspired title track, as we've spoken about. Yep. Just one more review uh, before we talk about Nobby. Uh, our friend Stephen Thomas Erlwine in All Music, he said, above all, everything must go is a cathartic experience. It is genuinely moving to hear the Manics offering hope without sinking to mawkish sentimentality or collapsing under the weight of their situation. Once again, Stephen Erlwine, I agree with everything you've written. There. He's the anti-Nobby McGee. He is the anti-Nobby McGee. And speaking of whom, shall we go on to Nobby <laughs> McGee? I do so with dread. Well, uh, don't worry, Kev, because he has said nothing on this album and nothing on the Manic Street Preachers at all. I am surprised by that. We have an entirely Nobby-free clash because he didn't say anything about the Charlatans either. I didn't expect him to say anything about the Charlatans. I thought he might have. Nope. Okay, good. <laughs> so we have no Robert Criscow on this week or next week's show. So uh, some time off, guys. <laughs> don't don't get used to it. <laughs> yeah, he, he'll be back. He will be back indeed. Anything else from you reviews-wise, or should we go on to some legacy? No, that's that's all she wrote. All right. So the legacy of this album is, is massive. It sold, uh, you know, well over 2 million copies. It won them a load of awards. It spent 64 weeks on the album chart in the UK. It saved them as a band, as they have said themselves. It rocketed them into the national consciousness. It made them a headline act. As we said, they supported Oasis at Nebworth and at Main Road. In April 1997, they headlined the Hillsborough Justice concert at Anfield. In May of 97, they then played a sellout show at the Manchester 9X Arena, which is now just called the Manchester Arena. Uh, was in between times called the Manchester Evening News, you know, that place. The big arena in Manchester. The big arena in Manchester, yes, exactly that, which is still the largest indoor arena in Europe, in fact. So for a band that, what, two and a half years earlier had been expecting to be dumped by the record label. Well, smashed up their instruments because, yeah, like, that, that was it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a real emotional, creative, whatever you want to call it, high point for the band. And this is, I promise you, the last time I'm going to bring in Manix fans, in inverted commas, in, into the conversation. It actually highlighted the stark contrast between their old fan base and their new fan base. So there's a DVD. I've got it, the DVD of that concert. And there's loads of footage from before the concert of, you know, teenagers hanging around. And you've got that real stark contrast of Manix fans, Fedaboas, Eyeliner. Juxtapose that with Indie Boys. Oasis t-shirts, baggy trousers, 
big floppy hair, pints of lager, a real shift in their audience. And so the band weren't bothered. They they embraced it. So Nicky Wire in Freed From Memories documentary, he said there literally were people who'd never heard the previous records. I kind of enjoyed that. I enjoyed not having to explain the lyrics of Gold Against a Soul to someone who just heard We Only Want to Get Drunk. James Dean Bradfield then said, I used to think to myself, when's the levy going to break again? When's Wire going to start absolutely offering people out? <laughs> <laughs> to which Nicky Wire then said, I remember when, I think it was in Cardiff, when I said, if any of you owns an Ocean Colour Scene record, you can walk out now. <laughs> a, a sentiment which I think we can all get on board with, to be honest with you. Absolutely behind that. <laughs> we need. We probably should do that album at some point. Do we have to? <laughs> yeah, because like, we keep doing albums that we really like. We need to do something where we really get into like. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, we should, that's a fair point. Okay, so so... From Everything Must Go, the Manics went on to even greater commercial success. So the follow-up album, This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours, it sold over 5 million copies. It was their first number one album in the UK. In 1999, they headlined Tea in the Park, V99, and Glastonbury. I was present at all three of those. <laughs> um, and. That's weird because This Is My Truth is far less accessible musically than Everything Must Go. Yet it was, well, it sold over twice as many copies. I suppose it, the, Everything Must Go broke the doors open for them. So by the time the, that album came out, there was a, there was a, new, a new and much bigger fan base that um, was ready for it. That very true. And also, as we've, as we've touched on before, in the summer of 1998, they were about the only thing that was around in, in, of this genre. So they they had a, a free marketplace to, to clean up with. Yeah. I mean, I've also revisited that album this week as we were searching for this clash because I didn't really like it at the time. It's a lot better than I remember. It's too long. There's 14 tracks on it and there's only one of them comes in under four minutes. And even then it's only eight seconds under four minutes. It's mm -hmm. far too long. There's a lot to admire on that album, but it's a really hard album to love. Yeah. Anyway, we're not talking about that album. Do you know what? I, I might. We might do that one day, actually. Okay. But yeah, they, they are. They're still going strong, as we mentioned at the start. So uh, as we record, they have the number one album in the UK with their latest, their fourteenth studio album, the Ultra Vivid Lament. It debuted this week at number one in the UK album charts. It's okay. It's fine bit dad rock but you know but it still shows that there is an active manix audience out there and to, to come back to something you were talking about this at the start that in that album chart battle they went head to head with steps <laughs> <laughs> the second time they went head to head with steps because this is my truth tell me yours also went head to head with steps indeed came out on top uh, anyway, we've been talking about this for a long time. Simply put, everything must go. Establish the Manix as a mainstay of the British music scene. Without question. I would like to leave the last word on the album to someone we have both expressed our admiration for, Stuart McConey, if I may. Yes. So he said, this is an absolute masterpiece because it's remained absolutely true to the initial vision of the Manix, which includes Richie's vision. That they'll be intelligent, they'll be corrosively angry, but positive without being sentimental. 
but it'll also add this widescreen quality. Everything Must Go is one of the greatest and one of the last great records of the British rock album era. It is also an unashamed record. It might come from a place of self-doubt, but it's unashamed in its belief that it's the right thing to do. This was a point in time when the forces of good were on the rise, and that's what Everything Must Go sounds like to me. The confidence of a band who've come from dark times. It's a triumphant record without being triumphalist. I mean, we needn't have recorded two hours of footage because <laughs> I could have just read that and gone, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, again, Stuart McConey just nails it. He's fucking nailed it, exactly. All right, so should we do best song, worst song? Yeah, I think we should. Okay, you want to go first? Okay, yeah. Um, there's so much good on here. It's very difficult to find a worse song, to be honest. <sighs> it's hard. I think I'm going to go with Removables. It's not a song I particularly dislike. It's just there's better ones on the album. <sighs> Choosing a best song is equally as difficult because there's there's loads really good on there. But if I'm... If I am truly honest, and I will be the shameless uh, commercial whore as I always am, I'm not going design for life. I'm actually going everything must go because of the bravery of calling out your fan base. Yeah, and it's a fucking great song. It is a great song. So there's no disagreement on worst song, and saying worst song feels harsh, but Removables, for exactly the same reason, it's just I like it less than the other tracks on the album. That's all I can say. Best song, it is tough. And I've got to pick Design for Life. <laughs> so it's it's equally populist. Yeah. It's equally commercial whore. I'm going to call out Girl That Wanted to Be God, Enola Alone, and No Surface or Feeling, because they're all phenomenal tracks that on many other albums would be the absolute standout. But with Everything Must Go and Design for Life, you've got two absolute classics of the time, of the genre. Both are really biting in different ways and i'm going design for life because as i said i can't think of another song which better encapsulates that evisceration of class bias and so that's why i'm picking it and all i want to sort of add to before we finish off we've talked about absolutely belting opening to to albums you look at that run so Elvis Impersonator, Design for Life, Kevin Carter, Anola Alone, Everything Must Go. That's five phenomenal tracks, yeah. It's not bad. Not bad at all. Great stuff. I think we are done with Everything Must Go. I think we, I think we are, and I've enjoyed, enjoyed it a lot. Uh, unless you've got anything else, Kev, do you want to tell people, as always, how to keep in touch with us? So if uh, you want to keep up with which basic staple for British life that we're running short of now, you can find <laughs> out about that on Twitter. Whilst there, you can also check out at Clash Album. Um, if you're a fan of quality curated content, then you can check out our Insta, Clash Album. Or if you're resolutely old school, you can um, send us an electronic mail at albumclash at gmail.com. Boom, there you go. Back on form this week. No maudlin <laughs> yeah. sentimentality. Great. So just before we go, remind people what they need to listen to for next week's show. So for next week, we are doing Telling Stories by the Charlatans. Okay. Uh, until that time, as always, thank you so much for listening. Get involved. Leave a review. Leave a rating. Like, share, subscribe, tell your mates, all that stuff. But yeah, this has been Album Clash. I've been Tim. I've been Kev. And we'll see you next time. Take care, Tim. So long. Uh,